The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, a quick announcement before we get started. If you'll be in New York City next week, join me and your fellow Next Big Idea fans for a live event. We'll be talking about AI, augmented reality, and consciousness with big thinkers, including philosopher David Chalmers and science writer Stephen Johnson. It's going to be Wednesday, June 28th, starting at 6 p.m. in the Meatpacking District with a VIP dinner afterwards for those who'd like to join. You can get more information and buy tickets at betaworks.com slash events. Now, on with the show. LinkedIn presents... What's the most influential force on us? Culture. So therefore, putting people in segments based on their culture are to be much more predictive of what they're going to do because of how predictable culture is to us. And the thing is that we we look at people based on demographics, these kind of statistical representations of people, not because they're accurate, but because they're easy. Hello there, Next Big Idea Daily listeners. I'm your host, Michael Kovnett, and I've been wondering about the demographics of our audience. Are you Gen X, Millennial, Gen Z? Are you male or female, white, black, Asian, Hispanic? But really, when you think about it, how much do these broad categories really say about your tastes and interests? A lot of market research and political targeting still puts people in these generic buckets. But when it comes right down to it, things like your age, gender, and race really say precious little about you. My guest this week is Marcus Collins, author of For the Culture, The Power Behind What We Buy, What We Do, and Who We Want to Be. And he thinks if you're in the business of persuading people to do anything, you're going to have to think of those people in a more nuanced way. Our approach to marketing segmentation is badly in need of an upgrade. Marketers typically rely on demographics to describe people based on their age, race, gender, household income, geography, and education. Demographics provide discrete boxes to put people in and help us make the world neat. But here's the thing. Demographics, while factual in most cases, don't actually describe who people are. Take my demographics, for example. I'm African-American, I'm 44 years old, I'm from Detroit, Michigan, born and raised, and went to public schools my entire life. If a marketer saw this description of me, my demographics, as their target interests, they would likely put me in a box based on the stereotypes they have constructed in their minds about what 40-something black men who live in Detroit do, or would likely to do. Like, what if I told you that Deborah drives a minivan? You likely think that she has kids and plays soccer and probably live in the suburbs. These depictions aren't true, but they are easy. And we rely on these cognitive shortcuts all the time. That goes for marketers and non-marketers alike. We say things like all women love to shop or all black people do something, fill in the blank, something racist. Not because it's true, but because it's easy. Well, yes, I am 44 years old, I am black, I am from Detroit, and I did attend public schools my entire life. None of this gets to the fact that I grew up playing jazz as a kid or that I swam competitively from age six through high school. I wrote love songs for a living in my 20s and grew up loving the monkeys just as much as I love the Tribe Called Quest. These experiences helped shape how I see the world, which ultimately informs how I behave in the world. Demographics never get anywhere close to capturing those nuances that make me who I am. However, my tribal communities do, which make these networks groups that we are part of a better means of segmenting the market, the demographics. 
Plus, people don't even self-identify by demographics. We self-identify by our communities and adhere to the cultural characteristics of our communities. Therefore, our behaviors are much more likely to be predictive of the behaviors of people like us than they will these functional, fictional boxes that we put people in. Demographics do a terrible job of describing real people. Cultural communities, on the other hand, are far more accurate and predictable. How can we capture what's meaningful about people if we can't get down to the level of the individual? That's right. So getting down to an individual is inefficient um, mm. and it's just very, it's terribly difficult. So because everyone's heterogeneous, we try to put them in homogeneous like clusters. Mm -hmm. And since our job, whether you're a marketer or an uh, activist, a politician is to get people to move, then those clusters should be representative of what they're likely to do, behavior they're likely to take on. Okay. Well, what's the most influential force on us? Culture. So therefore, putting people in segments based on their culture would be much more predictive of what they're going to do because of how predictable culture is to right. us. And the thing is that we we look at people based on demographics, these kind of uh, statistical representations of people, mm -hmm. not because they're accurate, but because they're easy. Mm -hmm. they're, they're simple, right? Like your height is your height. Mm -hmm. The gender is your gender, but it's fluid. You know, like the money you make is the money you make, right? Uh, where you live is where you live. Like these, these things that we rely on so heavily to put people in boxes when you were born, mm -hmm. like those things don't actually describe who people are. Demographics never get anywhere close to that. It is the hardware of right. us, but we are, we are governed by our software. So you're trying to find cultural tribes, I guess is the word you use, right? Exactly. So that it's not my demographic, it's my tribe. And then you want to drill down to like what makes that tribe connect, what makes them work. Uh, what are some examples of, of tribes rather than demographic categories? Right. So think about demography, like we're looking for Gen Z and millennials, mm -hmm. right? Okay, great. Like this on almost every brief, right? Mm -hmm. Um and we're a sneaker company, so we want to target those people. Well, Nike and Adidas maybe targeting the exact same demography. Mm -hmm. But who does Nike talk to? Nike talks to athletes. Mm -hmm. Not just athletes, but people who see the world the way Nike does. Nike believes that every human body is an athlete. Big, small, short, tall, we're all athletes. And since we're all athletes, Nike believes that the only thing keeping you from realizing your best athletic self is you. Mm -hmm. So what does Nike tell us? Just do just it. Just do it. Right. Where Adidas, on the other hand, believes in the creativity of, uh -huh. of sport, right? And therefore, they talk to the world through the lens of creators, right? Huh. Because of their point of view, they may be talking to the same demographic, but that's not going to move people. Instead, they talk to people who see the world similarly. And therefore, consuming the brand becomes a cultural act, Interesting. not a transactional exchange. It seems like there are a lot of ways that brands could go wrong in this direction. You think of all the culture war stuff where, you know, certain brands will get backlash for uh, either addressing, say, speaking to the trans community, for example, and then pissing off a bunch of people who don't feel seen by that and, and, and no longer will connect to that brand. I'm also thinking of these kind of um, missteps, like I, I know Pepsi got a lot of backlash for this Kendall Jenner ad where mm -hmm. she was giving a Pepsi to a cop in the middle of what looked like a Black Lives Matter protest. And it just felt so 
off, you know, like it didn't, it didn't speak to anyone in the culture. So I, I guess, I don't know if you have any suggestions for how to do this right, but it seems like there are a lot of ways you can do it in a way that'll piss a lot of people off. <laughs> it tends to happen like that, unfortunately, more yeah. than, 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 than not. You know, so it's two things on the, on like the, the, like the Bud Light situation, right. for instance. Now here's a brand who had long supported LGBTQ plus community. Yeah, mm -hmm. I actually worked on work for Bud Light for oh, yeah. that community. And so for them to partner with a transgender influencer made all the sense in the world. Of course they would. Like this right. is, you know, they've been doing it for, for years. But the minute they got pushed back, they flinched. Mm. And it's that flinching that like, oh, they mm. kind of they backpedaled. Not only did they piss off the people who were originally uh, in their opposition, but they also disappointed the people they've been supporting. Mm -hmm. Now no one rocks with them. Right. Now just sort of indifferent. And I think that's, the, that's the, the myth of the middle, talking to the middle, like trying to please everyone. No, no, no. Hey, your chances of doing that is just, you can't, you can't, you can't please everyone. So instead- Go after the collective of the willing, the people who are most likely to move because they see the world the way the way that you do. Mm -hmm. Now, in the sense of the the Pepsi situation, which I talk about in the book, actually, you know that that was just a, a that was a case of not understanding meaning. Mm. I don't think the people at Pepsi were trying to be you know hurt anyone. I don't think they were like mm -hmm. let's offend as many people as possible. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that way at all. I think that they just didn't understand that what they were signaling were going to be translated as appropriation, as right. offensiveness, uh, um, and as just you know, hurtful, harmful. Um, and that that's what they did. That's what they achieved because they didn't they didn't see the world through the lens of other people. So we talk about culture. One thing as a brand is what do you believe? How do you see the world? You should be operating based off that North Star. Then the second uh, is having very close proximity to, to culture, understanding the social facts that govern what they do, the nuanced things that that make the place tick. This whole idea of community and and culture and marketing in that way, I'm wondering if it doesn't cover up a lot of sins in the sense mm. that you say, you know, Nike came up, you know, or, or your agency came up with the uh, let, just do it slogan, which has been phenomenally successful. You know, Apple has built this, this incredible culture around the identity of being an Apple person. And it kind of takes our eye off the ball of like sweatshop conditions, you know, how oh, yeah. these shoes get made, you know, how these computers get made. And are they even that good, you know, is the quality of the shoemaking as good as it is in another thing, you know? So this, this gets back to that question of like, you know, the possible nefarious side of marketing that by creating this sort of love feeling and creating this sense of identity, I'm not really allowing people to kind of look at the thing squarely for what it is and make a rational decision about, is this thing well-made? Is it ethically produced? You know, maybe those are better things for me to be thinking about. I don't disagree with you at all. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that when we look at these things through a neutral lens, we can easily sort of forget the, the parts of the calculus that goes into evaluating whether this is a good thing or a bad thing. Thankfully, we have outlets in which that discourse takes place, right? We know about sweatshops. We know about these harmful environments because of press, because mm -hmm. of social networking platforms where people are able to, to have these conversations and decide what's acceptable for people like us. Mm -hmm. But then you also have brands like Patagonia, that I would argue is sort of the the zenith of mm -hmm. what brands should aspire to be. Patagonia believes in mitigating their impact on the environment. And not only is that how they see the world, that's how they communicate themselves, that's how they make their products, bring their products to the world, and they keep themselves honest, not just in what they do, but how they do it. 
right? They sued the government for Pete's sakes <laughs> in an effort to try to keep uh, sacred land sacred. You know, they told people, don't buy this jacket. Like, don't buy this jacket. Why? Because you can right. recycle your jacket. In fact, we'll recycle it for you for free. We'll repair it for you for free. Don't mm -hmm. buy a new jacket. Mm -hmm. If you have to, then fine, buy this one. Mm -hmm. Right. What, what would typically lead to less sales have constantly helped the business grow mm -hmm. because they are they are convicted by something and everything they do is a byproduct of that very thing. Is Patagonia 100% flawless? No. In fact, they actually have a transparency program where they show the good and the bad what they're working on, like the proofs that oh, they right. made and sort of where they're still anemic, where they're still shy. Like that, that to me is the gold standard. That's the, right. the, the standard by which we should be measuring ourselves as far as brands are concerned. Is it a hundred percent perfect? No. Is it ethical? Depending on your ethics. Right. Yes. But ethics also is culturally mediated. So that, that depends as well. Oh, but, interesting. Yeah. But, but so like, you know, this isn't to kind of glorify brands in a way that they are above reproach, right? but it does provide a framework by which we can get people to move. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you're enjoying this podcast, maybe you could do a little marketing for us. It's easy. All you have to do is give us a rating or review in your podcast player or share this episode with a friend you think might enjoy it. That's what people in the biz call peer-to-peer -peer marketing, and we appreciate it. Come on back tomorrow when Marcus will be back to share more insights on how culture shapes behavior. See you then.